0: Greetings, outcasts, free thinkers, narrative questioners, dot connectors, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever realm we exist in at the moment. You are about to embark on another free first-hour episode of The Melt. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For as little as three lousy Babylon Hokey Pokey tokens per month, you can have access to full-length, early, and exclusive episodes. Just visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast or click the link in the episode notes to set the process in motion. It's simple, painless, and very well might make you feel tingly inside. So without further ado, please enjoy the show! <laughs>
2: Center. If we had an independent chair, the company would be less identified with Mr. Buffett's political activities. He's donated tens of billions to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. As Bill Gates explained when the company was still together, although the company bears our names, basically half our resources have come from Warren Buffett. If woke culture is the disease, then philanthropy is the virus. The Gates Foundation bankrolls the teaching of critical race theory around the country, including that math is inherently racist. The Gates Foundation offers a gender identity toolbox which asserts that gender is a result of socially and culturally constructed ideas. This is a lie. Gender is not a cultural construct. It is a genetic and biological fact. You're not going to censor uh, what I say, ma'am. I'm very sorry. And I'll appeal to the chair that I'd be allowed to continue. Sir? Uh, you may continue, but you, you're under a three-minute limitation. Of course. We know how much Bill Gates cares about children. He met and traveled with Jeffrey Epstein many times after oh. Epstein's convicted sex. The Gates Foundation may be the largest single donor to the dark money machine known as Arabella Associates. It funds deposits like deep money or police for making American cities unlivable. Well, money goes also to groups conducting threats. <sighs>
0: That was Chairman of the National Legal and Policy Center Peter Flaherty speaking at the annual Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting before his mic got cut and he got escorted out of the building and then arrested. What caused the kerfuffle was when Flaherty started alluding to the Bill Gates-Jeffrey Epstein connection, but the real reason that I began with this clip was because of what he said about the Gates Foundation funding the CRT and the gender identity narrative. Once again, you have billionaire philanthropists funding divisive and extreme leftist politics to further divide us into more and more categories. Rich and soulless ghouls benefit from our infighting, both because it dispels the possibility of all of us uniting and outnumbering them all the more, and because it distracts us from the real crimes committed by said soulless ghouls. Today's guest, licensed professional counselor John Euler, not only spends most of his professional career working with high-risk sex offenders and sexually violent predators, but has also spent a good deal of time educating people about what he calls the trans deception. I start off the conversation by asking John about his background and what he does for a living.
3: I'm a 30-year veteran in counseling, I guess I'm quite put it that way, but I've been doing therapy for about 30 years have three areas of uh, specialization or three populations that I work with. One is survivors of sexual abuse, um, especially those that have been more severely trauma, well, uh, traumatized, what we might call complex PTSD. The other is kids in the system. And again, you'll have to forgive my voice. I'll, I'll try to work with it here. Um, the most severe cases... Uh, This was out in Southern California, so worked with the highest level severity of kids, either a step up or a step down from psych hospitals, and then um, working with men that were in prison. So for 11 and a half years, I spent uh, time on psych staff in the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. I was recruited to start. So that was not a part of my plan. I had never planned on working in prison. I was made an offer, too good to be true, which turned out to be true, but the uh, Department of Corrections had to start by virtue of a lawsuit from the ACLU. They had to do something with mental health inmates that they were warehousing in long-term solitary Mm -hmm. uh, because that'll really cause problems. Very few people are in prison for life Mm -hmm. so the majority of people in prison are coming out onto the street back into the community you technically can have somebody step right out of a solitary confinement environment give them a glad trash bag and put them on a bus that's a dangerous situation for all involved So they needed a way to get them out of solitary into general population so they could make that transition. None of the psych staff in the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections wanted to touch it because you're dealing with the worst of the worst. And they were almost gonna go on strike. So anytime somebody has to hire from without in a state system, you know something's going on. So I ended up starting the nation's first intensive treatment program, in long-term solitary confinement. It was a very unique experience. And through that, I accrued more clinical contact hours, boots on the ground hours, than any psychology staff member in prison, than anyone in uh, the US or Canada. So there's a claim to fame for it. But so that was my world. I then headed up one of their specialized forensic um, sex offender treatment units for high intensity, sexually violent uh, predators. So, I oversaw treatment for a year. Pennsylvania Department of Corrections flew Dr. Robert Hare out for specialized training for a few of us. He is the author of the PCLR, the Hare Psychopathy Checklist, that is the gold standard of forensic assessments for psychopathy. So, I'm certified in that. I then continued to, to do regular kind of groups, not just sex offender treatment, but I continued to do high and low intensity sex offender treatment, but I did regular um, violence prevention, thinking for a change, some of the other kind of groups. I was also the institutions for staff, their suicide prevention trainer, one of those. And I've done hundreds of parole psycho evals, especially for sex offenders and risk assessments. So. I'm very steeped in that world. After retiring, after 11 plus years, I decided to uh, go ahead and become a community-based provider. So I've been doing sex offender treatment as a uh, certified clinical sex offender provider in the community now for about two and a half years. I'm starting my fourth group. Um, I'm going to have two on Saturdays, and we have two during the week getting close to 50 men. So I've had now experience with both in, the, in prison and then men outside of prison. And then I do regular kind of counseling. I like that. Um, I, I do teletherapy during the week. And then I have my own podcast that deals with regular counseling topics um, on Friday nights. And then I have three websites. One is churchprotect.org. That was my training site because that's my number one concern. I speak to the issue of the trans deception, but my number one concern are churches because the most sophisticated of predators will specifically select churches. So churchprotect.org was my training site for churches. I then wanted the focus to be more on survivors, so I started a second site called survivorsupport.net. And then recently, we started a, a site dealing with the trans movement. And the goal is to unmask the trans movement. So the name of the site is unmaskingthetransmovement.com. We have a shoot channel. I think we just started a Rumble channel. And we have a YouTube channel. I also have a blog, jumping back to the predators. I have a blog called survivorsupport.com. US, and that's my blog. I have a lot on there about predators. Also on churchprotect.org under truths, there's a lot about my background, the research that I did. I'm not published yet. When I have time, I'm going to publish. Um, But I have not not peer-reviewed report. I have professional peer reviews on there in the form of emails. So if anybody wants to see my work, evidence that I really do know what I'm talking about, and combinations from the highest levels of the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, they can go on and see that. And I was the first psychology staff member in the U.S. to blow the whistle on inmate abuse that brought about an investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice, and I'm the reason why they no longer use solitary confinement for mental health inmate, inmates. So I, I guess I have that as my background as well.
0: Wow. Excellent. Amazing. And impressive. So did you, have you had any experiences yourself that brought you to these issues or did something else bring it to your attention?
3: Fortunately, no, I myself haven't. Um, I've worked in all sorts of settings. um, And it was while working in a private inpatient program that was my first introduction to trauma. I had never, if somebody had asked me what some of the worst things you can do to somebody, I wouldn't have come close. Cause fortunately I did not come out of an abusive background. And I think when we're dealing with the subject of trauma, oftentimes for those that have had, we'll just use the term relatively normal, but what is that? Mm-hmm. It's a setting on your dryer. (laughs) uh, If if you were fortunate enough to be raised in a home where it was relatively normal, then your your perspective is shaped by that. And so you will, because you're normal then, or we come from our perspective, we're going to project onto others that that is how family life is. And I'm here to tell people that is not how family life is. That is really the minority. But if you don't know what goes on behind closed doors, you can't conceive of it. So there I was. And at that time I had um, planned on vocational ministry, but it made a change. So I can tell you in the church, within Christian churches, people are clueless, except the survivors that are sitting in churches usually perped on by an elder, quite frankly. Um, so I'm working at a psych hospital. It was my introduction. I'm being trained and we're in a group that was called venting. Well, that's where you finally get in touch with your feelings. Right. And something had triggered one of the patients and they curled up in a fetal position. Now, really what happened is they were dissociating at that moment, Mm -hmm. but I uh, I wasn't trained in it. I went to Cal State Fullerton for marriage and family counseling. They also had a school counseling track. They had no courses in trauma. So I was seeing something. I had no place in my cranium to understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I watched the therapist who was very adept, worked with the patient, was able to bring her back. And that's when I knew I hadn't got, I uh, hadn't got, how's that for English? <laughs> I didn't have clue one when it came to really understanding what people possibly have gone through. So that was my awakening. I began working with then deeply wounded people and my heart went out to them. But I also began to find that I was very effective. And so in a counseling agency, so along with inpatient, we had a counseling agency very close in proximity to the hospital, and a number of the patients then would come see us. And I guess words started to get out among the staff that I was, that was now sort of my niche, so I didn't seek that out, but I started to have more and more clientele, the majority of them women, who were survivors. Um, My master's thesis was in eating disorders or disordered eating, and so I was already beginning to think about the impact of family origin, that's what I looked at, that was there dynamics within the family of origin that affected emotional eating. And so that paved the way for me to begin to think in terms of that our background doesn't have to determine our future, but it sure impacts us. And um, there's been a lot of research now into the effects of trauma. A very good book for your listeners would be Bessel van der Kolk. He's the leading psychiatrist, leading researcher. He heads up the Boston Trauma Center. He's written a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. So he shows what happens within the brain. When somebody goes through trauma, he worked with Vietnam vets. He was one of those that helped coin the term PTSD. And it's, it's not anybody's imagination. It's a very real thing because they can show brain scans of a traumatized brain and it processes stimuli 100 percent, 180% differently. One example would be if you, if you watch somebody that's been traumatized, especially in a, in a physically intensive situation, let's say a military vet or a police officer. If we were with a police officer or a vet, we walk into a restaurant such as Panera Bread, where they have the menu board up there. You watch the majority of people who haven't been traumatized when we step through the door, where are our eyes going to go? Right to the board. We're trying to figure out, or you go to Starbucks and, you know, you you have to speak a foreign language to figure out just how to order a cup of coffee, (laughs) right? So we walk in and we're looking at the board. Where do
1: their eyes go?
0: Reading the room. Go ahead.
1: First of all, where the exit is okay (laughs) there you go right secondly where where all the other points of entry are and scanning who's in the room
3: there you go you watch their eyes the very first thing is they're assessing for threat or danger that's now a part of their emotional dna they will find the furthest table in the back where they can see everything (laughs)
0: Back towards the wall. Isn't
3: that interesting? Yeah. So that's not an intellectual thing. That's now who they are. So if the only table available is one out in the middle of the room, they're going to have a very difficult time enjoying themselves. But the rest of us are clueless. Why? Because that's outside of our perspective.
0: No reference point.
3: So a a trauma survivor, as a matter of fact, the brain of a trauma survivor, as, as it's scanned, Very interesting. In a resting state, a non-traumatized brain, there will be a lot of activity. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know what, I just need to get alone so I can think clearly? A lot of us say that. So if it gets calm, we can start to think. So there will be a lot of activity in a resting state in a normal brain because now it's able to process thoughts. The brain scan, as far as activity of a somebody that has PTSD, very little activity in the normal cortical area, but in the limbic system, right, or the that part of the brain that goes into the fight-flight syndrome, a lot of activity. So when it's calm, a survivor's a survivor of anything intense, a survivor's brain goes on point. Now, what happens in a crisis situation? Those of us that have not been traumatized, we go into fight flight. But a trauma survivor can think clearly. Big difference. And that's why oftentimes, Bessel van der Kolk mentioned, he said oftentimes you will have certain per- military personnel that will re-enlist because they can't adjust to normal life
0: mm-hmm.
3: because once back in combat they can think clearly yeah in the a way they're re-traumatizing themselves but they can be com- they un- they feel more comfortable in that environment because they're they're adapting to their traumatized brain the other situation would be a domestic violence situation You take a domestic violence survivor and put him or her, it's typically going to be a woman, you put her in a normal relationship and she'll drive that. She'll either end up leaving because it feels, let's say, a decent guy and he's giving to her. That will begin to feel so uncomfortable that she will either sabotage the relationship and leave, leave, or she will drive him to become reactive typically she's going to find another abuser why it doesn't feel good but at least it feels normal so it's that silence it's that calm that will drive the the uh, ptsd survivor uh, crazy meaning they'll feel anxious so it's very real and so as i was beginning to work with survivors and then Of very profound cases, including what's called satanic ritual abuse and dissociation and what used to be called multiple personality disorder. I didn't believe in any of that. I was actually somewhat to my shame. I was somewhat antagonistic, Mm -hmm. not out loud. Mm -hmm. So I'm one that can speak almost authoritatively coming from a position that I didn't believe in any of that. But it unfolded in front of me enough and in enough profound ways that it's real. And again, what does the mind do with trauma? And so I became very adept at that. I still work with survivors. I have two SRA victims Mm. even now on my caseload. And so it makes you wonder how many kids have gone through that. And so, strangely enough, then in my background, I'm very adept at working with trauma, those that have been hurt, and those that have been hurtful. So, um, during the week, by day, I'm working with a lot of survivors, then I turn around, and now I'm working with the sex offenders. So, it's quite the whiplash effect.
1: Yeah. I, I have to say, this is probably going to be one of the most valuable interviews that we've ever done for... My relationship with Chris because you just in these very few words that you've spoken so far you have said so many things that resonate with me and and that makes so much sense that I think it will bring a different level of understanding of who I am as a person to my husband because I have experienced childhood trauma from, basically from the womb on. And so the person that you described going into a Panera Bread is who, that's who I am. And so when we are in a car, for example, and we're driving, I have these moments of panic because I feel totally out of control. So I just want to thank you in advance for what you the work that you were doing uh, what my question is you mentioned sex offender treatment do you think that it's possible to treat someone who has been a sex offender and uh, cure that person of of that behavior
3: I'll answer in two ways. One is yes, because I'm a sex offender treatment provider. (laughs) What goes on in my mind? And what do I know? Very few. Very few. How what percentage? Very, very, very low. By the time a guy gets to a point where he offends he is in the process of becoming different eventually into deviance and I can describe that process. So that ultimately by the time I'm working with guys, I can have in one group, guys that have run the the gamut, I believe there's eight categories of sex offenders ranging from, and the inmates actually use this phrase and I thought that's a pretty good phrase to describe them the young and the dumb. Because again, what does it take to get the label of sex offender? Well, you have to get arrested. That means you've broken a law. What range of sex offenses are there? There's a lot. There can be, or you have, uh, what, um, let's say enough of an age difference so here's the most mild thing. So let's say you have a senior in high school dating a sophomore in high school. And they've been dating for a year. As a matter of fact, they were encouraged. They became king and queen of homecoming. Okay. Let's say he was 17 and she was 15. That's encouraged. Let's say she's a cheerleader and he's the quarterback. So he's... He then becomes a senior and she becomes, we're going to say, a sophomore or maybe a junior. And then he graduates. Now the question is, what group of friends is he going to have? Is he still going to stick with the high school group or is he moving on to college? Is he friends with her friends? It's typically minors now. He's become age 18 well she's under the age of 18 and let's say her father is the judge and let's say one day as teens will do they become intimate he's an adult she's a minor he can be charged and if the prosecution is heavy enough and if the judge is severe enough he can go to prison i don't know about you i know a lot of people in that situation that have never done prison time for that guy there's hope right part of the culture the culture right so he's not what we would call deviant he is what we would call the young and the dumb but he then would be given the label of sex offender. That's unfortunate, but that's the reality. Because when we all think in terms of a sex offender, we don't think of that kind of guy. But it's right. important for people to understand there's a wide array of people that wear that label. It tends to be fewer in that category. Then you will start to incrementally um, see an age gap, and the type of methods. So the first category, we understand that, but he's still now in trouble, and he could be in one of my groups. Guess who he could be sitting in group with? The kinds that we think of. So that it's, it's quite a shock for that guy to end up in prison, and now he's, he has this label. But that's the category I think there's hope for. The next category would start to be the manipulation. Okay, this is either manipulation of minors or manipulation of adults, where you can um, have the guy that's going to manipulate the woman on the first date. Okay, happens all the time in college. Okay, we're going to get her drunk and what happens? So that's another category. I've had a number of those guys in my groups that were in college, college parties, and now they're busted and they're in prison. Then you start to get into the more purposeful, and it can include, and that's where it starts to include by degree force in whatever way. So it's very calculating, and you can start to have Power and control. You start to have that power differential. That also can be in positions of trust, authority, and respect. Pastors, teachers, Boy Scout leaders, coaches. I mean, the list goes on and on for all of us. Okay. Larry Nasser but that was even more extreme because Larry Nasser oftentimes well, I shouldn't say oftentimes but I'm going to assume some of those patients were not very coherent so doctors can use drugs okay then you're eventually going to get into and this fits the categories into deviant so I'll describe that and I didn't understand what the definition of deviance was. And quite frankly, I don't know if a lot of my counterparts in the field can really define it. Usually they'll say, well, it, it meaning you're doing stuff outside the norm. Well, we understand that X number of deviations outside the norm. But it means you're really bad. You're really kind of, OK, well, define that. What does that mean? It hit me one day, I think year number 12 in the prison system. <laughs> And all of a sudden, I realized that the actual term deviance describes the process by which and really the end result of a downhill, slippery slope effect. And that's the best way to understand all of this. Who can become a sex offender? Any guy. The majority of them are men. You can have females, but they're different by nature and they have different types of offense. But the one thing you'll never see, I have yet to see, is a female who is aggressive and has used an object on her victims. You won't find that. So, by nature, male deviance is different than female deviance. But a lot of female sex offenders, I would say, aren't deviant. Now, they're messed up, they have issues, they did wrong things. But there, a lot of them are developmental issues. For instance, the teacher in high school started dating the freshman boys or the junior high. You notice not a lot of their victims are going to be below the age of puberty. That matters. Okay, so my background is dealing with men, so I'm going to speak from that perspective. So thinking in terms of the slippery slope, Only what deviance is, is the desire to have a significant negative effect upon someone. And that's what you get off on. Now, let me define how you get there because that's very different. When you think about a normal man, now what is normal? But anyways, a normal, a guy. He will only be able to get an erection as long as he knows his partner is enjoying herself. That she is with him, so to speak. Right. Okay. That's where you you hear the term, you know, somebody ruined the mood, such as let's say the guy is ready to climax. And all of a sudden she says, oh. Those spots, I really need to clean those spots <laughs> on the ceiling. There you go. So what what would happen I, in one of my groups? Even in sex Tree, we talk about this, and it was very funny. One of the I said, "Guys, what would happen?" And one of them, who still isn't too heinous, all of a sudden he says, "Oh, I said that's right, right." The guy's going to lose his erection because she ruined the mood. Okay, so a normal man cares about the feelings of his partner, okay? As he gets into selfishness, so think about the slippery slope. He's going to start to care less and less about his partner, more about himself. Ego and selfishness is growing. So he's going to transition from care and concern into lust. So lust is passion that has become selfish, that also in a way starts the objectification process. I'm not viewing the other person as a person, but it's a, it's a process that builds. So I'm starting to objectify. Well, all guys understand about less. So we all battled that, but hopefully we want to come back to the straight and narrow. We wanna come back to the path. So we don't proceed down that. But if a guy begins to proceed down that, he will eventually enter into the process uh, or the next stage, which will be lust will transition into eventually power and control. But the middle stage in there is very much self-entitlement. Self-entitlement basically says, Well, I know you're not in the mood, but I have needs. That means your wife ain't along with you. She's not in the mood, but you don't care. How many guys will say, you know, how many women have to pretend to be asleep and the guy is still going to have sex sex with her? That's really bad. And that's why she feels used. The next stage will start to then be the power and control. It will then transition. And so you can see that BDSM starts to fit into there. Okay, So already you know that somebody that's into the BDSM stuff, the kink stuff, they ain't normal. There are three or four important degrees off, off center the next stage will be degradation humiliation then degradation now we're talking unfortunately a lot of the porn that's out a lot of the mainstream porn as a guy transitions from that point this is where deviance starts you've gone from power and control And humiliation now and think about a guy's ability to have an erection where a normal man has to know that his partner is enjoying herself now he's still able to get an erection all throughout those stages by the time it's humiliation what is that about you know she's not enjoying herself if I'm whipping my partner you really tell me that's enjoyable something has happened i'm now transitioning into deviance which is i am now getting excited over the negative effect i'm having upon you that's not normal and it's building by degree and what i would say is as that is happening a person is changing into a psychopath there's two kinds of psychopaths, white collar psychopath and bloody psychopath. The kind that comes to all of our minds is the bloody psychopath. For every one bloody psychopath, I contend there are thousands of white collar psychopaths. Totally. Psychopathy is, is narrowed down to three key issues. And it all comes down to this, conscience. Okay, because each step downward off the slippery slope My conscience is becoming less effective because I don't want it to be effective. I'm overriding Mm it. I'm hardening my heart. I'm creating a callus. I'm cauterizing. It's becoming petrified. There's a lot of different terms that are used, quite frankly, in the New Testament. It's very interesting.
1: Mm.
3: Think about cauterizing a wound. I'm deadening the nerve endings. So that what I used to never be able to do, it used to bother me. I used to be convicted by my conscience. That doesn't bother me anymore. And as a man goes further down that path, and this is actually gender neutral, by the way, this process of hardening one's heart. A person becomes less impacted by their conscience. They become freed to then do what they want to do without any pangs of guilt. So whether in the movie Tangled, we have a mother Gothel, right? That was a psychopath, right? Or the male psychopaths. So in terms of psychopathy, it doesn't matter, male or female. The brain scans of psychopaths, somebody can go online and actually look at the brain scans, look at images Mm -hmm. of that. They're very different in this sense. Where empathy and remorse should tend to light up, for a psychopath that doesn't. Empathy and remorse are very visceral responses. You don't have to think about that. So they put a bunch of psychopaths out of from prison. How they know they match their offense? Right. Um, if you can do heinous things to someone, clearly heinous, then you're probably a psychopath. They ran through brain scans. Robert Hare was the first one to do this. And they showed the, the different patterns within the brain as far as the heat and resonance and what activity. And what they found was for the psychopath, it's very different than a normal person. If anybody's familiar with the New Testament, the Book of Romans talks about, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. There's a, three times it says that. There's a progression. The term reprobate is a metal-urgy term, meaning it's no longer good for its intended purpose. So you have to toss that piece, piece of metal out. You're not going to build a bridge with it. Our minds, that's different than our brains and our IQ, right? Mm-hmm. Psychopaths are the ones that I'm concerned with. They're very smart. Mm-hmm. James Fallon uses Bill Clinton as an example. He's 100% correct, Um Robert Hare uses Bernie Madoff of the NASDAQ. He made it off with everybody's money. Okay, mm-hmm. psychopaths are very smart, generally speaking. So it's not dealing with IQ. It's dealing with, in a way, values. Our minds were designed to ha- place a high value on people and a low value on things in terms of loving people and using things. As I go downhill, As I'm hardening my heart, as ego is growing, as I am changing little by little, that process of loving people and using things begins to get inverted to where it will become permanently fixed to where you love things and you use people and you like it that way and you never want to be any other way than more of what you are. Welcome to the world. How about the world of finance, the world of politics? Exactly. Right, dog eat dog, use as you can, right? And so that's why I say we're around psychopaths all the time, the smarter they are, the less you'll know they're a psychopath. But psychopaths also have one quality, it's called impression management. Totally. When When Bill Clinton was, uh, went to the funeral of Ron Brown, the Secretary of uh, Commerce, who, in my estimation, was murdered. The plane went down. It was clear day. They said it was a foggy day. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Bill Clinton goes to the funeral of Ron Brown, and there's a clip that caught this on the news. He's walking out of the church with Tony Campolo, who was the representative evangelical—I think the guy's a fraud, but anyways— Uh, he was the representative evangelical bill used him as a prop. Mm -hmm. So you have a religious leader walking side by side. They're talking Bill Clinton and Tony Campolo. Now picture this, you've just been to a funeral. You're about 25 paces out of the door. The service has just gotten over. Bill Clinton is on the left. The cameras are on the left, Tony Campolo on the right. Bill Clinton's looking to his right. Bill Clinton doesn't see the cameras. Um, no, I'm sorry, it's reversed. Okay, and the reason I reverse, sorry, is Tony Campolo doesn't see the cameras. They step out. Bill Clinton's telling a joke. Tony Campolo is with this joke. They're laughing. So Tony Campolo, his back is to the cameras. They're laughing. Bill glances over, sees the cameras, and on cue pouty face Tony Campolo didn't know what and you could see his face like we're just (laughs) what happened okay on cue so a psychopath can change up on cue he can look the American people in the eye and say I did not have sex with that woman (laughs) <laughs> you know, that darn right wing conspiracy. And I, you know, I got to get back to the work that the American people voted me to do. And I'm not going to be distracted. Right. And it can, it's the big lie theory. They tell huge whoppers. And if they get busted in that one, they just step over and tell another big whopper. It's the art of it's slick. willy. it's Teflon. They're very, very amazing. So getting back to the process. So once somebody gets into deviance, it shifts from, Again, think about dealing with sex and sexuality, where a normal guy can only get an erection if he knows his partner is enjoying herself. As you go downhill, the person that you're with is not enjoying themselves, is enjoying, them, they're enjoying themselves less and less, but you're still able to maintain an erection. Then it eventually gets to, and here's where deviance comes in, it eventually shifts after the humiliation Um, dimension, is now going to be all about the kind of negative effect you can have on someone. That's how you end up, for that kind of man, getting an erection, and he can only get an erection.
1: Now, I have an example of who this person is. Uh, I would say that's Harvey Weinstein. Yes. Absolutely. Now, here's someone right. who was in probably every sex workers book across the United States and did not want to be with sex workers. Who he wanted was women who were repelled by him because he has such a sense of self hatred that how he gets off and what he gets excited by is the revulsion of these women and having power and control over them. Right. But Hunter,
3: what I would say is you're spot on, but I would suggest you reframe it. He has such a love of self. Interesting. Self-entitlement.
1: Interesting. So here's
3: the thing. The further someone goes down, the better their self-esteem gets. Now it's not normal But how do you have to feel about yourself to believe you have the right to transgress somebody else's boundaries?
1: That's interesting
3: you because you feel was, right about yourself.
1: I was considering his his family relationship, and he was someone who was very deeply loved by both of his parents. He manipulated so, all of them. So that makes sense that he actually has this overinflated ego. He feels go. like he's the most powerful man in Hollywood because he is the most powerful man in Hollywood. And so the revulsion that he is creating in these women is actually arousing to him there you
3: go and as a matter of fact that's one of the myths if somebody wants to go on and see the myths that i've written down and truths that i found out over the 11 years while working with the guys in prison then go on to churchprotect.org and you'll see the two tabs i recommend you go through those because there's a lot of what i call urban legends that have been in the literature because of flawed methodology. And what I mean by that is, that I wouldn't have understood any of this, and I wouldn't have believed what I'm going to say if I hadn't worked in a prison. It was brand new to me, didn't want to work in it. That wasn't part of my long-term plans. So there I am working in a prison, had worked extensively with survivors. Now I'm working with the people that caused survivors. So I have my own vicarious trauma. What do I do with it? I channel my, my anger politely into writing reports and still objectively. But I also knew that I had an opportunity because a lot of, a lot of my coworkers on psych staff had planned on, at some point in time had planned on going into the prison system. And I found out about their backgrounds. They started to share it. very, very different. They came out of the hard sciences. Mm. A lot of biology, one accounting. Okay, um, <laughs> I came out of the counseling field. Well, if you come out of the counseling field, ide- ideally your goal you want to view people as poten- having the potential of growth and you want to and healing. Mm-hmm. So you're always looking at pro growth kind of stuff and mm-hmm. and woundedness.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: If you come out of the hard sciences, basically, you're going to view people as hardwired. Mm-hmm. And that's why they wouldn't put any extra time, effort, or energy into working with the inmates, It's just very functional. They would approach treatment that way, sex offender treatment. So they have their manual, they have their book. They go in, open their book, and we're going to have the guys fill out more blank spaces. And they're going to memorize And how do we know if they passed? Well, they completed the work. Mm. (laughs) Okay, let that sink in. Okay, so we don't necessarily need proof that they've changed, like ask them a process question. Right. How many guys did I deal with that some of them went through high intensity, which is two years. And so now they're sitting for parole and now I'm gonna ask them about it. I said, so you completed sex, oh yeah. Oh no, right, because they worked it. They faked right. it to make it. Right. So a lot of these guys would come equipped with their little awards and their little certificates.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So you completed. oh yeah. So they start to show, oh, okay, that's good. Um, so you did a good job, oh yeah, and I, I was a mentor. Oh, well, heck, <laughs> So okay. I so, well, okay, well, that's good. Um, let me ask you a question. Well, from your perspective now, after all this treatment, what do you think the current you now, how do you think the current you now is different from the old you when you offended? I got this blank stare. And then it's like they push a button. Now they're regurgitating little factoids and right. little phrases they got from sex offender treatment. Okay. That, that should concern. Everybody. Okay. What we want to know is as a guy changed, Is he broken? Is he contrite? Does he have empathy? Mm. The correct answer, I would eventually tell all my guys, is this when I would ask this, what has prison taught you? Oh, you get all sorts of. (laughs) I've learned, you know, oh, you know, um, it really helped me see myself. And okay. The correct answer is this. You didn't learn a darn thing from coming to prison you already knew the difference between right and wrong you're full of crap why are you dishing it out mm-hmm. okay you don't learn anything by going to prison because you knew so they don't need here's a name of a program they don't need thinking for a change they need a change of heart yeah some of the groups aren't bad the guys hopefully get stuff from it But if you don't go after, as a treatment provider, if you're not going after the issue of moral bankruptcy, if you're not going after the issue, meaning they're morally bankrupt, so you wanna go after the issues of morals, if you don't go after the issue of character, and if you don't go after the issue of spiritual development, then you're being snowed, and you haven't done any good for anybody. Because none of these guys, I mean, I dealt with the mental health unit, I've dealt with severely mentally disturbed inmates, the kinds with the tinfoil hats. So trust me, I understand mentally ill people. And the one thing about a crazy person is this: here's a quick assessment. If you want to find out if somebody's crazy, ask them. Normal people fear being crazy. A crazy person will tell you, but they'll tell you about the voices. Because inevitably, they're going to hear voices because they're psychotic. They're schizophrenic. There's five reasons for voices, that being one of them. So a crazy person doesn't hesitate to tell you about their voices. And they'll tell you why you should listen to them.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And their voices are going to tell them what's true. And you that's why you need a tinfoil hat. Okay, And a crazy person doesn't differentiate between in public and in private, as far as if they're gonna do something crazy, people don't pull the blinds down then perpetrate. Right. So that's one way to know. So other than that, so very few people that ever come to sex offender treatment are crazy. So they know the difference, they knew the difference between right and wrong. So it's not thinking for a change, it's a change of heart, they didn't care. So they have to have their conscience brought back. Some are too far gone. So that brings it way full circle back to honor your original question. How many of these guys can be brought back? You know, very, I think very few, because I can discern. And there's ways to kind of tell, there's really 10 stages on into deviance. And then after a guy, by the way, gets into the deviant stage, you're going to have, again, at that point, it's the inflicting of trauma. That's the ultimate stage, so it's the defilement, it's the the defrauding, the defilement, and the inflicting of trauma. That's what they're getting off on. In terms of pornography, it matches. That's the last thing a a sex offender wants to talk about. That's the key thing in sex offending. 100% of sex offenders, 100% of them will have been progressing in their porn use prior to offending And 100% of child offenders, meaning those that have offended children, are busted with child rape porn. 98% are busted with the distribution or dissemination of that. So that means that the child offenders are way down on the the end of the deviance. um, One step further from child rape porn is snuff porn. And then you have one other category, which would be the necrophilia, sex with the dead. Prior to the child rape porn, all these guys are, at some point in time, will be watching bestiality.
1: So do, do you believe that they are in the system, that they are capable of refining their skills as sexual predators? Because there's more of a a um, a
0: captive audience
1: well like like you have more of an ability to connect with other offenders when you're in prison like don't don't people who have children who maybe are are not violent criminals don't they kind of segregate themselves away from sex offenders in prison like do they stick together how does that work
3: you know, the, the most dangerous person to be in prison is a pedophile. That's very true. Um, so most people try to stay away from the pedophiles. The pedophiles know their safety in numbers. And most prisons now will protect the pedophiles uh, because they don't want to get sued. So they have to provide some sort of protection, but things still happen. You're 100% correct. Most criminals... And I think in terms of the criminal mind, if they kind of cross those lines, they will spend their time trying to perfect their skills and interviewing others to, so that they can derive uh, additional skills. When it comes to the sex offenders, and let's say in sex offender treatment, because again, once they get out of prison, they're mandated into treatment.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: My hope is... Right. So I approach it that I don't know who's going to benefit. I'm hoping all of them because then society will benefit and no more victims. The reality is, do I think a lot of them are? No, but I still approach it, still have the same energy as I'm just kind of casting you know, casting the seed, so to speak, what they do with it. I think once they're out, they're not with each other. But behind the scenes, of course, pedophiles network with each other, certainly online. Right. I can't tell you how many guys are busted by their agents for having more than one cell phone. Mm. It just cracks me up. None of it's funny, though. Um, many guys, of course, are found with porn because the agents will touch base with these guys, will make visits out to these guys. And at any point in time, an agent can take their phone Start going through it, and then take it back for analysis. Mm. And it, it, and it's, it's almost always the guys that I don't suspect. So even though I've been doing this well, again, not that I don't suspect them, but it's, it's sort of right. surprising to think. Well, he seems like he's got his act together,
1: right? So, John, I am. So honored and it is such a privilege to speak to you and please, 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 will you agree to come back because we have we didn't even get through a third of chris's oh. questions. <laughs> no. I feel like I hijacked our conversation because no, I really had so much and and I want to kind of delve into your work even more because I think it'll help my my studies Um, but I just want to thank you so much for your time and your energy and all of the work that you've done you are truly a shining light in some dark corners of this earth and we need more people like you uh, just doing this kind of service so thank you so much for coming and being on the show
3: that has been my pleasure you two have been very gracious and I'm sorry you know that it went on so there's such a lot Of course,
0: absolutely. We have so
1: much more that we want to delve into.
0: Yeah, perhaps we can have you on in a couple of months again to talk about. I'd be happy
3: to. It'd be my pleasure.
0: Fantastic. Well, maybe again uh, you can tell people where they can find you and your work online. Sure. Let me
3: give them my most recent site because I think it's the most useful as far as the trans movement. It's unmaskingthetransmovement.com So unmasking the trans... We've got about um, 104 parts, uh, 52 episodes, so very informative information on that
1: okay.
3: uh, as far as subject matter experts that we've interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, then SurvivorSupport.net, you can find my podcast for my counseling mm-hmm. program on that, so mm-hmm. SurvivorSupport.net. My blog, Dealing with Perpetrators, is Survivor, SurvivorSupport.us, and then my training site for churches, but it has a lot of my uh, the insights that I gained during my time in prison, so to speak, um, is churchprotect.org. So no space in between that, churchprotect.org.
0: Fantastic. We'll have those links in the episode notes so people can access them easily. Um. Yeah, thank you so much for all your work that you do and all the good that you spread in the world and the awareness that you're spreading by having conversations like this. We greatly appreciate you coming on and taking time to do it.
3: You're more than welcome. It was a pleasure.
1: Wow. Whoa. Amazing. Really, really great. Yes. And and very affirming of my... my Thoughts and my perspective about a lot of stuff and things that we talk about on the on the reg mm-hmm. about the satanic element and the uh, the uh, you know aspects of the trans movement and you know we have gotten into these discussions before about the kids and the grooming and all of that shit happening and it's nice to hear someone. Who sees that from the, the predatorial standpoint of of working with sex offenders and seeing how all of these things are intertwined and how they're all interrelated uh, the anime element it's pretty it's pretty messed up
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, and the thing that sparked this whole conversation in the first place meaning, <clears throat> why I invited him on was hearing him once again on forbidden knowledge news. Thanks, Chris. Um, and hearing him explain not only about the urban myth that, um, you know, people are just kind of recreating their trauma or passing on their trauma that they experienced when they were kids onto somebody else mm-hmm. because they haven't dealt with it. Yeah. Uh and Instead, replacing that with a process of uh that one has to go through to get to that level of uh, I see it as not being connected with your conscious anymore. Conscience, I, I always mix those words up. Um, and you just get to a point where you need more and more and more to uh,
1: get off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really? for lack of I a better mean, that's term, that's really what's happening. So
0: it puts the responsibility on the shoulders of the perpetrator, as opposed to them potentially being seen as a victim. That's just yeah reenacting, yeah. Uh, and I think that makes a lot more sense. Actually, it's mm-hmm. it seems so obvious, but that makes much more sense because, as he also stated, a somebody who is a victim of that is gonna be the person that's gonna be not passed that on and it's gonna be the one protect wanting to protect yeah people in that situation. So
1: and that's so affirming of my my life circumstance and my life situation. Uh and I got emotional in the beginning of the interview. It really struck me. Like he really he really got me. Um and and I felt so validated because I experienced early childhood sexual trauma and I have experienced a lot of, you know, in two varying degrees, things that he was talking about. And it, it really affirmed my, my reactions to things. And I, I think, what it just shows is how normal you are compared mm. to how, yes, and compared to how I react and respond to things. And I really hope that, that that did bring some understanding when he was talking about how different people react, someone with a normal brain to someone who has a PTSD brain, like when we're in the car and I'm jumping and I get all freaked out it's not a contrived thing that's happening I have different neural pathways and different parts of my brain are firing and so what you are doing seems normal to you but my reaction probably seems overblown and it's because I am I'm having some visceral um, reaction to how you're driving, or or my fear of some accident, or so because I've experienced those things.
0: Yeah, uh, starting with the Elisa E interview, and and actually starting much longer before that. Um, just uh, going by symptoms of my, or, or parts of my personality, um, my my uh, self esteem. Uh, the way that I view myself, things, just various things throughout my life all seem to point to something that should have happened, that would make sense why I'm taking away all of this stuff. So I'm starting to wonder if either I had a normal childhood and all of these things are just... There's different reasons why they're appearing or why they're coming into my view, um, or I didn't, and what I experienced is so seamlessly buried that it is if I had a normal childhood because I don't connect with it anymore. Like it's like I put a wall. A very does that make any sense? A wall mm-hmm. between that potential experience or series of experiences, and myself, uh, which would also explain a lot of things about my personality. Like I'm very, as you know, very adept at building walls between things that I could get barely upset about and myself currently, whatever state of mind I'm in at that time. So I can create an emotional distance if, it, I, if I, as a protective mechanism. And maybe that's where I got good at it is protecting something intense that happened. Things, a couple of things came up in the Elisa E interview that I haven't gone into with you yet because I'm still trying to process them. Uh, and I'm not going to choose now to do that. Um, that just made me scratch my head like, well, what? Okay. That doesn't make any sense, but it's in a certain sense, it would make a lot more sense than having all these disparate elements, um, in my in my uh, oh lack of words, in my psyche that that just seemed to not have anything to do with anything uh, concrete or tangible. So, yeah, I'm sorry that I just took that in a completely different direction. But functionally, yes, I think I am coming. My my reference points are much more. Uh, even keeled than yours were. I don't remember having an, as many upsetting things. And if so, not to the to degree, the degree that you had in your upbringing that caused you all of the things that you experience or that the residue that you experience in your day to day, day to day life today. Yeah. Currently. I mean,
1: I, I, uh, I did what he said, which was, I didn't become a, perpetrator, I went deeply inside of myself and I went into drug addiction and um, massive, massive, massive emotional eating and uh, living in a 30 year cannabis fog and, you know, just not wanting to feeling such physical shame and emotional shame for the things that I experienced. And then you know the the time that I spent in the sex work world, a lot of that was about trying to work through uh, this stuff and trying to um, control those, experiences these sexual experiences and feel that I had some agency and some ownership in that space as opposed to how I felt as a child which was that my body did not belong to me that mm-hmm. my body was not my own yeah. and so to hear him uh really validated a lot of of my uh choices that I made and and really made a lot of sense and I think it also makes sense why I've chosen to go into the field that I'm going into yeah. and how I am, um, ma- like, manifesting that world and what what my desires are in that world. It's so funny because I, I want to go into the sexual deviance space. Like, that's the field that I want to focus on And I think a lot of this is to push back against this idea that um, transitioning children is normal and that um, these sexual paraphilias are normal and these sexual addictions are normal, and they're not. And I think it's really important that there are more people like John that are speaking out against these things and having the courage within the... Uh, therapeutic realm to speak out against them Mm -hmm. you know I was thinking about other people that we've talked to who say yeah you know it's it's good to have these dolls and this is actually going to help society and and it's like no it's not it's the opposite of that this is this is a dehumanization of women and it is this post-human movement that's happening that people who refuse to have relationships with women are going into that space as opposed to having these you know uncomfortable clunky relationships they'd they would rather have something that they can absolutely control and objectify and there's a danger to that
0: yeah i think that's if first of all if you have the impetus to be in a i don't call it a relationship but we'll call it this for the sake of the argument uh with an inanimate object that's that's red flag number one um And then to just have a hands-off approach to that and just go, well, they're just going to do what they're... I mean, they are going to do what they're going to do. What do you do? Like, Tranquilize that person and put them into captivity? I don't know what you do, but I think if they're allowed to simmer in that stew, uh, it's only going to get worse. They're only going to dissociate with real human beings even more. And that's never a good thing. I mean, people need to socialize i don't care how much of an introvert you claim that you fucking are or a intj or whatever the goddamn different i don't know what that test that you can take is the psychological test that people that tell about your personality types but um
1: myers-briggs
0: myers-briggs yes uh there's some people wear like a badge of honor um, you do need to associate with people. You need to check in with humanity uh, at least every once in a while to maintain that connection. Otherwise, you can get into dangerous territory. I don't think that you have to, um, but some people, I think, more than others, need that real-life interaction, like you said, clunky interaction sometimes, in order to you know, just keep grounded in humanity.
1: I I feel like this was a really great uh trippy therapy session for us in many regards and it felt extremely important. I feel like the conversation was extremely important and I feel like he is someone who is doing incredible work. What what I wanted the reason I started the conversation out Asking him if he believes that sex offender treatment is useful or productive is because I wanted to where I was wanting to drill in was okay. Well, what's the fucking answer? I mean, we know know that's where you were going. We know that the answer is death. Don't watch pornography. Well, don't watch pornography. Let's start there. Don't watch porn. Porn is bad. It is bad for the brain. It is bad for children's brains. It's bad for adults' brains. It should not be part of our, uh, the zeitgeist or the culture. So there's that aspect in that element. But what do you do to bring someone back into their humanity? Is that possible?
0: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not that much of a porn reactionist. I think 99% of porn is bad and destructive, but I don't think every single bit of it is. Um, so I'm not as absolutist as far as that's concerned, but I think that the way that most people utilize that, not, not to mention the content in and of itself, but is like they get into it more, like it is a substitute to them for human-to-human interaction. And I think that's that's a very uh, negative negative circle to get into spiral, I should say. Um, and then that's where you get porn addiction and blah 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 blah. I don't know what even what sex addi- addiction is and how it fits into any of this, if it does. But I guess we're talking about human to human interaction, so maybe it wouldn't doesn't play into that. But yeah. And it's interesting what he said, too, is that in these cases of sex sex offenders and pedos and stuff like that, porn is always in 100% of these cases.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and and I was thinking back when he started, when we were kind of going through the timeline, when you got up and you went to the bathroom, we were talking about the timeline of when all of this started and the DSM-5 in 2013, when it was rewritten, there was a, uh, a aspect of the DSM-5 that started to include transitioning into, um a category that could be billed by insurance Mm -hmm. prior to that, the DSM four, which is what I have a copy of and what he's saying we need to go back to is the DSM Mm four was when it wasn't uh, classified so that you could uh, bill via insurance. So what he's saying is that at that period of 2009, when RuPaul's drag race, came online and was on television and uh that that was kind of the beginning of the drag or or the kind of transitioning movement Mm -hmm. where it really became kind of more mainstream what i would what i was saying to him was that in the 80s when i was in when i first had my first run in in school, I took a human sexuality class. And one of the things we talked about was transitioning and what the process of that was. And it was a year of therapy, and then a year of actually living in another as the other gender. And it was a long involved process. Now they're trying to transition infants and saying that infants can be transitioned. I think that there have always been segments of the population who maybe perceived uh they had some gender dysphoria some confusion about their sexuality maybe didn't want be for religious reasons or cultural reasons didn't want to be homosexual so the transition is the way to to navigate that but I think it's a small percent of the population that has been in that state. And now because of the DSM five as of 2013, so we've 10 year increase of this. He said it's a J curve. So basically there has been this huge spike, um, upward, this huge uptick. And I think that that has a lot to do with, uh, the normalization of this. Oh,
0: for sure. Definitely. I don't know why anybody would trust anything that big pharma is pushing so desperately. Um, They have proven themselves to be completely untrustworthy and they are absolutely all about money and they could give two flying fucks about anybody's well-being.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's all of these corporate interests. So it's, Big medical, it's big pharma, it's insurance companies.
0: Fuck yeah, they're all in caveats. So
1: they're, they're all working, and it's big ag, <laughs> you know, poisoning the food. So it's all of these uh, tentacles of the octopus that are working together. Petroleum. And the intention here, as we kind of rounded up the conversation, rounded it out, the, the intention is an absolute destruction of the family, the absolute destruction of women. And I think that it's really, yes, there is an aspect of the masculine that needs to come in and stand up for women and be, be very vocal about this. But I think women have to be the ones it's the mama bear energy that has to come cool. in and say no, I'm not doing this. That's the
0: female masculine masculine doesn't have to be assigned to somebody with a penis like that's what the mama bears are is the fucking female masculine aspect of st- stepping up and
1: well yeah, it's just it's the it's the female warrior yeah. it's it's the female energy that comes in and and, and says I'm going to protect children and, and i think that's a really integral part of this discussion is that women have to be willing to be the fucking karens they have to be willing to stand up and say no i'm not doing this i'm not allowing this
0: yeah and also the for them to protect themselves like women yeah. are the are huge i mean it's kind of pathetic to see how quickly women were thrown under the bus to forward this whole narrative, like, I mean, it's just, it's 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 insane. It's absolutely yeah. insane. The same women that were complaining about you know smashing or wanting to smash the patriarchy, but it's like, let's just give them dresses and let them come on in wherever they want to come. I know you it's know, so
1: like, weird, but but I think there's enough of a pushback now. I think what what ends up happening is that. The women that allow their children to go through this transition process and they see what's happened and they see that that they've co-signed on to a lifetime of surgeries for their child and the suffering that happens in that, I think these women are going to be part of this battle uh, of saying, no, I did the wrong thing. I should have... You know, my little girl was a tomboy. I shouldn't have put her on uh these drugs. I shouldn't have allowed her to cut her breast off. I should have said no and just let her ride it out. Yep. you know i I think that that they are going to be that, that the women who have supported the transition movement, they are going to be the ones who really have to step in and say no we did the wrong thing
0: yeah and we have to stop being worried about what trans activists are going to say about us saying any of this um because who gives a flying fuck i mean we're stating truth here it's not my truth it's an objective truth and- it's
1: science
0: it's science. Yes, it's
1: science. There's two genders. That's science. That's not my opinion. <laughs> exactly.
0: If you think otherwise, you are a you're a dupe for the psyop. The ultimate fucking psyop yeah. that just branches and goes hand in hand with the psyop of COVID and everything else that led up to it. Like the political differing political yeah. parties. It's all tied into one another. Why trust any of these well, fucking institutions? What
1: like. what I'm saying is I'm saying that with love. Of course. I love women. I absolutely love women. I love men. I absolutely love them. If you have any confusion about your gender and your sex, you still deserve love. Of this course is you do. not this is not a hatred or a phobia. This is not based in any of that. It's based in love for the human and the human experience.
0: And if you feel that you are in an impressed class that does not give you license to be hateful or, or threaten people or make people feel unsafe or think that you're the most important human being on earth, it doesn't give you a license to do that at all. That's a horrible tactic to take if you want to people to understand where you're coming from and to understand your suffering and your plight. Horrible, horrible tact. Conversations are always the best way. Uh, uh, humanity, humility, and a sense of decency are always the best policy for anybody. I don't give a flying fuck who you are. If you are an intersection of the six most oppressed categories that you think of, of all human beings, you still have to have... It doesn't give me an excuse to be a, a hateful cunt by any means. All right, so...
1: On that note, <laughs> <laughs> no, There's no, there's no cringing.
0: That's, that's, that's. I mean, every single syllable of that. It is no license to be a uh, an inhuman person.
1: Yeah, that's a fact.
0: Okay. And we we're on twenty five minutes. I know, amazing on the end of a uh, an episode that was longer than anticipated. Anyway, so thank you for. We had
1: some technical and time difficulties, but it all worked out in the end. No,
0: even that. I'm going to butcher all that off, cut all that off. But it was it went long anyway, despite that. So. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Let's get on with our lives and let these wonderful people Mm -mm. get on with their lives. Thank you for making it this far. It's greatly appreciated. Hopefully you got something from this, Um, and that's why you stuck around, um, and that you're not a sucker for punishment, and you just kind of grit your teeth, and, oh, God, there's only 15 more minutes. Um,
1: I have a feeling that people are doing things when they're listening to us, that they're driving, or they're taking a walk, or, you know, doing some exercise or something, so...
0: Well, like the the person on Instagram posted, mornings with the melt. Yeah, that was cool. That was amazing. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Thank Thank you all that share uh, this stuff. It's greatly appreciated. People are going to trust you uh, with this more than they're going to trust us.
1: And and send us... uh footage of you watching or listening to the melt in whatever context that is i love that i love to see you guys out in the world you know living your best life with us because we love you
0: it's good to put faces uh humans have faces whether we like it or not and it's good to see embodied Uh, human beings behind all of these comments and wonderful things that you have to say and suggestions and so on and so forth. So feel free. Anyway, if you would like to get a hold of us to suggest people to have on the show casserole recipes, frittata (laughs) recipes, um, uh, you can send them to the Melt uh, podcast at protonmail.com.
1: And you can always reach me at hunter-muse at protonmail.com.
0: Thank you. Uh, We love you all. We do. And um, stay tuned. Fantastic things coming your way.
1: Until next time.
0: (laughs) I'm such a gook. Thank goodness.
1: Bye.
0: If you've liked what you've heard and would like to contribute to The Melt, there are a few ways that you can do that. The most tangible would be financially just click the Patreon link in the episode notes and there you will find ways that you can contribute for as little as $3 a month. This will give you access to bonus episodes, early access to regular episodes, and you can also participate in monthly Zoom meetups. Contributing financially will also help make the melt better, pay the bills, and help to make this podcast a full-time endeavor that I can fully devote my time to and provide you with more content. Another way of contributing would be to go to wherever it is that you subscribe to The Melt and give it a favorable review or rating, and this will help it to reach more people. You can also spread the word to friends and family via social media, email, or word of mouth. And lastly, if none of those options are readily available or appealing to you, simply send your positive thoughts and intentions. In an interconnected and quantumly entangled multiverse, these also go a long way. Thank you.